0: Welcome to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, also known as the URM Jam, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine.
1: We will address the real and perceived barriers faced by historically underrepresented in medicine students and residents when considering a career in academic family medicine, and provide practical tips and personal advice on topics like leadership, scholarly activity, CVs, mentorship, and more.
0: I'm Dr. Omari Hodge,
1: and I'm Dr. Tochi Irokomolise, and this is URM Jam. It is my pleasure to introduce my mentor and friend, Dr. Jeanette South Paul, who is our guest today to speak on academic leadership roles. Dr. South Paul was the Andrew W. Matheson. UPMC Professor and Chair of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine from 2001 to 2020, retiring in that year. She previously served as a medical corps officer in the U.S. Army and Chair of Family Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and as Vice President for Minority Affairs. She was responsible for the educational research and clinical activities of the undergraduate and graduate medical education, faculty practice, and community arms of three family medicine residencies and seven ambulatory clinical sites, and also for the academic missions of five additional UPMC family medicine residencies in Pennsylvania. Dr. Southpaw has served in leadership positions in the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the association of american medical colleges and the association of departments of family medicine and as president of the uniformed services academy of family physicians as well as the stfm she's a family physician with special interests in the areas of cultural competence maternity care and health disparities in the community she's also interested in workforce diversity and racial and social justice welcome dr south paul to our podcast
2: Thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Dr. Rokin-Willis and Dr. Hodge. It's my pleasure to be able to join you today.
0: Well, I'm glad we got a second for me to meet you earlier. And I want to say thank you for your service and your sons as well. But let's get into the first question. How did you get into academic family medicine and particularly a leadership track? As we were listening to your bio, it was obvious that leadership and Dr. Southpaw go hand in hand. But how did how did that come to be?
2: Well, that's a great question, Dr. Hodge, and it really is something that I credit the U.S. Army for. I was on an Army scholarship in in medical school because I wanted to have an opportunity to return uh, my recognition to the nation that had welcomed my immigrant parents here, and also because there were six of us kids in eight and a half years, and there just wasn't any money. So it was really kind of important to have a way of not having to worry about whether I could eat while I was getting my training. So let's be real about this. Those <laughs> are important issues in the, in the world today. And so as a result, I had leadership exposure very early in my mm. academic career. I spent every summer on an army base uh, in between my first and second year of medical school, between my second and third year, as well as part of my fourth year. And so that was great to be able to see a wide variety of people and actually more diversity in the army than I ever saw in medical school. And it gave me an opportunity to see how people led. And so I recognized that, and we were told, not just I recognized, we were told that we were leaders by virtue of being in the positions where we were. And that helped us to understand that there was an expectation to be outward facing, not to think about ourselves so much, but how do we contribute to others around us? And it was emphasized to us that, If you're feeling disempowered, remember, you're more powerful than somebody else. And Uh so you are there to represent and to speak on their behalf. Your, Your voice is important, even if you don't perceive yourself as being high up on some hierarchical chain. So I started thinking about that when I was in uniform. And it it was while I was in uniform that I had an opportunity to really be invited by others who must have seen something in me to to get involved in other things. So I was a part of my first AAFP committee, um, I think as a second year resident. And it started as a resident. I went to my first AAFP meeting. It was in Las Vegas. And I was just amazed. I had never seen <laughs> right. all of these people together. And you, you know, the, that era, the AAFP meetings were a true performance production, a show. Right. And I thought, wow, there's a world out there I didn't know. Right. And I just started talking to my colleagues, you know, uh, my faculty who had invited me, I said, well, what about this? And why is this there? And why? And that's when I started realizing I needed to ask questions. Mm. I needed certain environments, and I yeah. need to listen to the guidance of others.
1: So I, I like that you said that you you asked questions. So you were proactive in trying to, you know, figure out what you didn't know. And I think that's that's sometimes people are afraid to do that. But that's right. I guess the one of the advantages you had also is that you all along people have been telling you that you needed to uh, to speak up and to and to and to reach out and to be the voice and so that was that was pretty helpful i think just even residency i'm thinking so that means your program director supported you going to the because there are a lot of residents and students out there right now who are saying that um how do i even uh, get my program director or my dean or you know clerkship director to allow me to go for these uh
2: programs and i think it's it's important because i talk to young people that i mentor now and i say it is more likely that you will be able to be involved if you're in a larger program rather than a smaller program. Right. I was in a program with 12 residents a year. This was a large Army program, Mm -hmm. and we were the largest program in the hospital. And so if you had an opportunity to go somewhere for two days or so, it didn't shut down the operation, the clinical mm, operation. Right, right. I have right. if you were at a small a 444 program or something like that. Right. But so when I have particularly advocacy-oriented students and residents who are thinking, or especially students who are asking where to apply for residency, I say you need to be at a place where, first of all, they it, they appreciate your voice, right. they'll appreciate right. your involvement, and they will help you fit that into your schedule. So one thing I've, I've
1: seen, of what I've done with students who have come to us is when they're doing clerkships or residents, if they're doing any um, tracks or electives, uh, we'll, if they're coming to us and there's an STFM or a, a AAFP meeting, we'll say that that's okay. That's part of your, we'll count that as part of their training and we'll let them go. Um, so yeah, so it's that, that kind of support. All right, so I'm going to ask you now. So we know I read your bio; it's very lengthy. I didn't, I I didn't even do it justice. But um, for for the students and residents that are out there, I want to know what are the opportunities that are out there if they want to get into academic leadership. Um, Because it's one thing to do regular leadership, but what do they need to do? What do they need? What are the what? What's what's out there once they finish and they're going on the academic track and they want to become a leader in academic medicine as you have been. So. What
2: would you what's your guidance on that? Well, you know, I think the first thing to keep in mind if you want to be a leader is to start where you are. So often folks will say, if you let me go here and do that, I Mm. would show you how good I could be for you. I could show you the leader that I am. And one of my earliest mentors who actually gave me my first academic leadership position as a vice president for minority affairs was the immediately retired Navy Surgeon General. And he said to me, sat down with me, he was a a great mentor. And he said, you know, I hear this all the time. I can't show you how good I am where I am. (laughs) I need you to help me go here, there, everywhere. He says, oh, no, no, no. You need to show me where you are so that when we ask you to get involved with something, the default shouldn't be, no, I can't do it. But, okay, let me see whether this is an opportunity to to develop because you have a lot to learn. So start where you are. For me, I noticed that patients as a second year resident, patients in the military, the minute, specifically women, the minute they got pregnant, they were told, don't do anything. So my very first research project, and they said, oh, because it's dangerous to the baby. And I said to myself, I, you know, for thousands of years, women have been pregnant, <laughs> <Right. and laughs> doing stuff. And now we've decided because we're worried about these right. that minute that pregnancy test is positive, you shouldn't do anything. So I started going around and saying, what's this all about? And asking people. So I opened my mouth and Mm -hmm. I started going to different folks and they said, well, you know, we have to be careful because many of them are exposed to a lot of different things. I said, the problem is 30 days after you deliver, you have to do a two mile run and sit-ups and push-ups. And if you haven't done anything for the last nine months, there's no way you're ready. Not to Mm -hmm. mention you haven't had any sleep for that first month of that child's life. Right. I said, this doesn't make any sense to me. They said, well, you know, that's the way it is. I said, well, you know, I got to do a research project on this. Mm. And I, st- I worked with a pulmonologist that I was working with. And we started doing exercise testing on a treadmill with a with an oxygen consumption meter to see what happens to the fitness as measured by VO2 right. uh, max in women at different stages of pregnancy. It was a bear to get it through the IRB, as you can imagine, because you mm-hmm. we weren't supposed to do anything in pregnant women at the time. Women, what yeah. it did was it got me visibility, because they said, "You know, that was before research was even thought of as being right, active. right, right." Right. That, that was say. in the in the dark ages when I was a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, I sort of became known about this, and I then presented my research at the USAFP meeting R, because I was in the Uniform Services Academy and Family Physician, mm-hmm. and that got a lot of interest too, because they said. This has direct applicability to our students. And it has a direct applicability to policy. And it is something where you can then be an advocate. All of those elements of what we need in leaders. But I didn't start thinking I was going to be a leader. I just started saying, this doesn't make any sense to me. And this is not good for patients. And we have to do something. And by the way, this is before I ever got pregnant. I mean, I wasn't thinking about being pregnant myself. This is because... (laughs) I was outward facing and looking at what was good for patients. So I think when we think about leadership, we should think about who advocacy for those who have less of voice.
0: You know, something that you were saying um, in your examples that really resonates with me is that, and I think it also goes back to how you even answered the question number one is that. The leadership kind of started with you. You, you. you you looked for opportunities that were in front of your face. And I think a lot of times when I'm talking to residents or the faculty members or even thinking about things myself, sometimes we're so pie in the sky in our thinking and we want the the um, attractive looking jobs, but we don't want to approach the things that are right there in our face. And sometimes that we might even find that we're passionate about them. You know, as you were talking, I could hear the passion yeah. that you were speaking from And I think if we stay there, we can do some great work, which will propel us to some of these other opportunities that we might want to later on in life. So I really appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Absolutely. I I resonate with that as well. Uh, Just looking at the things that are in front of you and then taking it from there. And that's really, that's the same thing that happened with me in terms of getting recognized for the work that I was doing as a resident. And then, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And so I say, so they say, Absolutely. you're really good at that. Here, take this on.
2: <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because once you step outside of your immediate space mm-hmm. and you get into a regional or national organization, nice. your name starts coming up. Yes. So I can start telling you. I mean, I was on the Women in Medicine Committee. Then I was mm-hmm. on the and, uh, public the, the Commission on Public Health. Right. Um, and then I was chair of the Commission on Public Health. And then I became known in the Association of American Medical Colleges because I had now been in a medical school environment for a while. I was on the first planning committee for the Women in Medicine Leadership Seminar that's now in its probably 30th year, 30, 50 years or something like that. And then because I was in the Metro Washington area at the time, I, they, I said, well, you know, they're doing all these things for women. And I do appreciate it because I'm a woman. But there are other issues that are unique to people of color, specifically African-Americans at that time. And we need a similar workshop. So they said, well, would you like to be on that planning committee? And I said, okay, I'm going to bring some of the things I learned from that other committee I was on to develop this minority faculty leadership program for, um, minority faculties in academic medicine. And, um, we just had our 31st year and I've been teaching it in every year. And as a result, that helped me to be known in other areas. Mm. And, uh, so when, and when I got a, um, Elected to the National Academy of Medicine back in 2011, that again provided visibility that got me on different committees with non-family physicians too. And so once you step forward to do the first or the second thing, then your name becomes known. And you're invited to do other things, but you have to perform when you're there. You have to go right. to the meetings. You can't just be imported you know appointed to a committee. You actually have to attend. And there are all these assignments. <laughs> you have to do your assignments. You're right. You're right. One you time. Yes yeah because you're taking
1: up this you're taking up the seat of somebody else who wanted to be on the committee that didn't get put on the committee exactly. who would have done the work. so it's yeah. not just to have your name and put that as a checklist, it's to get there, do the work, learn from others, share your knowledge, and then yep. you know that's that's the idea D- Don't just take up a seat.
0: okay, well, let me ask you another question, Dr. South Paul, since we're gleaning from your fields right now. um speaking of leadership, you know when we talk about going into academic leadership roles many times. Um, we start thinking about barriers and obstacles that might need to be addressed so that we can get to these roles. What are your thoughts on that?
2: You know, you can't begin to outline the number of obstacles that can come in front of you. Mm -hmm. But I recall something that has been a mantra I've kept in mind for years. I actually don't remember where I learned it. An obstacle is what you see when you take your eyes off the goal. Mm -hmm. say that again. An obstacle is what you see when you take your eyes off the goal. And for me, being in the army could have been an obstacle because I was had to answer to lots of other people ahead of me, most of whom were not women or people of color, by the way, when I came through. Yes. Yes. I was a, rather unique as being a black woman officer in the medical corps. Hmm. Uh, that could have been an obstacle. Having small children could right. have been an obstacle. I had to figure out how to do that. Having a husband in private practice while I was in the army and the things they wanted me to do and how, trying to figure that out, that could have been an obstacle. Coming from a, a poor immigrant family with all of the other f- extended family things. Right, that,
1: that comes you know, with that. No,
2: <laughs> there's always somebody who needs something somehow. Right. Right, a, right. That could have been an obstacle. Feeling as if not just feeling, but recognizing when people discriminate against you because you're a woman, Mm -hmm. because you're black, because you're a Christian, you came from a fundamental background Mm -hmm. and there's things you don't want to do when you're not, that could have been an obstacle. And I'd say, you know, I can see that this is a problem for you. It doesn't have to be a problem for me. So how about if we sit down and talk about it? There was, there are endless things that can get in the way of your advancement if you look at them as insurmountable. Right. I always say you look at them as issues, you have problems you have to solve. And what is the best way to solve that problem? If you say, well, you know, I can't go there because of this and such. Well, you're gonna be stymied forever. Right. right. just another problem to solve. Just put it on your list.
1: Mm-hmm. Work
0: hmm. it. That's good.
1: That, that is true. Um, you, you, I, I i really really appreciate that because there will always uh, be obstacles or barriers uh, no matter what we do and the key is i think the common thread that a lot of us who have gotten to where we are today three of us now here uh, that we chose to not allow them to block us from doing what we needed to get done our passion our mission our visions our goals we said sure fine we'll we'll find our way and make it happen and we didn't take no, uh, we, didn't, we, and and we didn't buy into to, that concept that we were less than.
2: Exactly, and sometimes you have to compare things. Yeah. I still think about so often the response when a woman physician in the army would get pregnant and would not be feeling a hundred percent and would sometimes have to be put on bed rest and things. And I was surrounded by men who would say things like, well, you know, if you hadn't gotten pregnant, you'd be right. able to do your job. And right. I said, yeah, if you hadn't gone skiing and broke your leg, you'd be able to take calls. Man. You chose to do that. Right. So don't tell me I chose to get pregnant. Right. And so sometimes you have to get a little irate right. and you have to bring it up and sort of you know, put it on yeah. the table and say, before you assume that, realize that we always pivot. We right. cover each other's backs mm-hmm. because that's life. Yes. You cannot sit there and take a life event and say that that makes someone unworthy. Right. You have to factor that in and say, that makes us us malleable, it makes us uh, human, mm-hmm. it makes us members of a team. Right. And the reason why teams are more effective than individuals is because teams compensate for each other. Yes. So don't tell me this stuff about, I chose to do this or I chose to do that.
0: You know what I like about what you said? There's a balance between almost a sort of righteous, indignation and offense. It's like you, I hear you saying, you know, don't allow yourself to be offended because you got to push through those things. But at the same time, know when to speak up and, yes. and, and use, and use wisdom to navigate some of these hard obstacles. Otherwise people will tend to continue to push, push on you in areas where they shouldn't.
2: Absolutely. You, the, you, you have to reserve the righteous indignation for particular situations mm. and not fight on an hourly, daily basis, okay. because it drains you, it discourages you, and it takes away the energy and the spirit you need to be innovative and move forward. Okay. So sometimes you have to just step back. And I've seen that as a department chair, trying right. to negotiate for rotations for my family medicine residents in a huge system where they didn't want to give, let them function in the pediatric hospital. They wanted to send them to some rural community. They didn't want them to do their deliveries in the women's hospital. They wanted to send them two hours away. I said, wait a minute. It is important for you to understand that we, you, I'm talking to other department chairs now. You're all part of the team here. And we have to support one another. And just as you don't want your residents compromised, you can't compromise my residents either. Mm. And send them all over the, the, the state to do these rotations. So you have to, you don't fight, you gather data. You are you you make sure that you stay firm and focused on your conversation. And sometimes I'd say, you know, I think we've had enough different disagreements today. I'm gonna to call call this meeting to a close and yeah. let's reconvene in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I am I am unwilling to yield to your position, and you're clearly unwilling to yield to mine. So maybe we'll give ourselves a couple of weeks to think about it and we'll reconvene. And right. I have done that many times. It's yeah. called stalling.
1: <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Put it in the parking lot. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree for today. <laughs> so, all okay, right. So, the the last question, really, and it's going to tie up with uh, the, how we like to end the show is: What should students and residents be doing now to get on board with this process in terms of you know academic leader ro- leadership roles? What or th- what three take home points would you like to give them so that they know so that when they finish with this podcast, they say, "Okay, I know what I'm, I need to do next."
2: I think they need to identify two or three leaders that they emulate, leaders that they would like to be like, and reach out to them. So Don't start by saying, oh, they're too busy. They probably won't have time. You'd be amazed. People who like to lead and to mentor don't mind talking to people who want to follow them. (laughs) Reach out to them. Say, I'd like to set up a phone call or a Zoom session, and then tell them what your vision is and ask them whether you can check in with them periodically and then do that. Don't disappear. Listen to what they say. Let them make give you some advice about certain things. Bring back ideas that you have and then ask them if there are other people that they could also recommend. So you take the first step to reach out to someone already in leadership position and then stay connected to them. I like that's
1: that. Good. That's good.
0: That's very So good. good. So good.
2: And also early on, establish your core values and mm. the spiritual anchors that you use in life mm. because... They're going to be once you de- demonstrate your leadership. They're going to be dozens of things coming at you, right and left. Oh yeah, you're going to have to make hard decisions. Make sure that you stay true and authentic, and yourself, your personal beliefs, your values, your family, and then weigh those opportunities against that core before you get pulled into something that you really didn't want to.
1: That, that that'll also that that's taking you away from your focus and your your goal. Yeah. And 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 you're it's easier to do a lot of the work and to work hard on something that you're passionate about and really believe in, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to if it's just a, a job or a task. Uh, so yeah, I, I appreciate that. So I don't know, uh, Dr. Mar, do you have any final, qu- any other questions for? No, you?
0: Dr. Southpaw, there's a lot to, <laughs> uh, to tease apart. We'll have to
1: take this offline, it's really, like. i gotta go figure out what i want to do with my life now (laughs) (laughs) so i'm I'm laughing because she's my mentor so she's been my mentor forever so uh i I say i I will share a little (laughs) that's a little bit
0: (laughs) can i set up a zoom session with you later i'd love to
1: So I don't know. So, um, yeah, I, this has been just, uh, there's so much more we could discuss cause you have such a wide, uh, expansive experience. Um, uh, but you're telling them everybody to go out and be proactive and, and make that call or tap that person and say, please. And if they, that person's not able to help them, then let them recommend someone else who can, um, you know, just, and then follow, keep going, just keep mo- moving and, and don't stop. Don't stop.
2: Absolutely. Realize that every day is not a a day that you're going to necessarily feel successful, Right, but that's okay, because that's Mm. part of life. And don't be discouraged. But again, go back to your core values, your spiritual anchors, and let those things direct you. Because every day is not going to be sunny, but that doesn't mean it can't be a good day
0: well said well said
1: thank you thank you so much so i think we're at the end of our podcast and we thank everyone for joining us at the urm journey to academic medicine take care thank you
2: appreciate it have a wonderful day everyone
1: you've been listening to the urm journey to academic medicine podcast brought to you by the society of teachers of family medicine you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers, as well as on our website
2: at stfm.org urnjam Follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm.